And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, October 26th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, with the world as it is, U.S. agility is more important than ever. Plus, they helped write a big new law, and now they have to help carry it out. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Health Administration more than doubled its hiring goal for fiscal 2023. But the agency doesn't have enough human resources people to get that job done. So it's taking recent college graduates through a year of HR training to fill the pipeline needed to fill the bigger pipeline. It's called the HR Star Program. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman got details from the VHA's chief officer for workforce management and consulting, David Perry. The HR Specialist Training and Accelerated Readiness Program really came from thinking about this over the last couple of years, about where we were struggling with the overall just competencies and basic skill sets of the HR staff that we're really hiring, as you know, directly in our field locations. And so we have 18 regional offices that support 170 medical centers. And so looking at how we needed to address the overall skills and competencies of that workforce in a consistent way, we comprised an idea that we pitched to our leadership a couple years ago, actually now, to really start putting a focus, but more importantly, an investment in the training of our HR specialists. And so that's where HR Star came from. We looked at what our average turnover rate was and on our vacancy rates within the HR community, which is about 20% every year. And so we look at that and say, okay, well, then what is 20% of our current population or census of HR specialists? And so that gave us a net of a thousand people we wanted to bring in each year. And so obviously we aren't equipped to bring in a thousand people to do them all at one time. So we had to really think through the structure of that. And so that's where we came up with this cohort concept. So every month was a different cohort that we would onboard of about 80 to 100 to get to that thousand net in every year. The beauty in that design actually is that that means that every month after they do their initial year of training, we start graduating those HR star trainees and are able to place them in their future business offices or home offices that will be that direct support for our field employees. And so we just started that back last year. So this month, October, we're actually graduating our first cohort. And so we're in the process of placing 87 people right now that are going into their new future homes. And so that means November, December, and every month forward, we'll be graduating a class that will do direct placement out to those regional offices. And of course, we continue to hire so that we're always bringing on a new cohort. Getting back to what we were trying to accomplish with this program, as I mentioned, was really trying to get to ensuring that we were giving foundational knowledge that was standardized and comprehensive enough so that an HR specialist, when they go do live work, actually had that skill set that were needed. Oftentimes, you know, we would hire and have to do on-the-job training, or we would get people in the real world that maybe didn't actually have the depth of knowledge that needed to be successful in their job. And so we really need to tackle that issue. And so this is what HR Star seeks out to accomplish. And so a caveat I always like to say, though, just because you spend a year in intensive training doesn't mean that you're a subject matter expert. It's just really getting you to a foundational level of training in HR to help you continue to grow. And so it takes about three years in VHA to be a fully proficient and fully performing HR specialist due to our complexities and just the, the way that we operate healthcare. 
Just to follow up on that final piece there, David, in terms of getting these people once they do complete that one year of training under the HR Star program, what does their education from there on look like? To your point, is it more learning on the job, so to speak? Is it continuous training? What does that look like for them? Yeah, great question. And so I think we're looking at that from a didactic approach. And so there's always going to be national training that we have to accomplish as we get new legislation or or new regulations or policy on how we actually perform the work. And then in conjunction with their home office, ensuring that that continuing development of skills and education continues. So it's a blended approach with my office providing that national oversight training that's needed to push out so we understand what the current rules and policies are needed. But really that home office or the gaining office of these new employees really have the the bolus of that training to make sure that their employees continue to develop and grow and enhance their skill sets, building upon that foundational training that we gave them. In terms of the intake of candidates into the HR STAR program, of course, you know, an interest in all things HR is a must, I would imagine. But what kind of skills and what kind of aptitude does the VHA look for in these candidates, recognizing they're going to be doing a lot of learning in this one year of training that they'll be undergoing? But from the get-go, what do you guys uh, look for? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways we look at picking the right candidates to come into HR. I think we like to give an accurate picture of, again, the workload that they're going to be eventually performing, the complexities and the, the significance and importance of our mission. And so those skills come from a couple areas, either from experience, maybe from other federal agencies or other HR jobs in the private sector. Of course, formal education helps as well. And so looking at those things are really kind of to get to the concepts and principles that they need to be successful in this agency. And so being able to have not just the technical skills, but the soft skills around customer service are important. And so we're really the ideal candidates that we look look for have a blended kind of background. So they have the experiential that they've done in previous jobs, blended with the education. But you can qualify under each path. So there's the experience path, there's just purely education path, and then what I would call that combination of education and experience. And those are really the candidates that uh, I think stand out. And so thankfully, we've had more candidates apply than we can actually, we actually had 10,000 people apply to that announcement. And we were only hiring, like I said, about 80 to 100 positions. And so the interest is there. And so I think that puts us in a good position to get a really highly competitive skill set in our candidates that are applying. And so uh, it's exciting to see that there's so much interest to come work in this profession and make it a career, right? And so not just a job that you want to just try out and maybe use as an entry-level position, but HR is really a career for us. And so we like to get them on the ground floor and then continue to develop them into more and more advanced roles to include our leadership roles. Wow. Yeah, that 10,000 applicants is pretty eye-opening. Obviously, a lot of the conversation around the HR Star program has been around the hiring the hirers, and that's obviously a huge part of what HR does. But can you spend a little bit more time unpacking what HR in VHA looks like and some of the roles and responsibilities that these people take on on a day-to-day basis? So in HR, we have 11 core disciplines or functional areas, and so that looks like everything from classification, which is how you describe what a position does for all of our occupations, whether they're healthcare positions or administrative positions. We have recruitment and staffing, so being able to look at how we hire and recruit employees. We have employee relations and labor relations. We have staff that focus on HR information systems, what we call HRIS, and so people that have more of a technical skill. We have position management. 
manpower, uh, just to name a few. So, but there's a lot of disciplines. And so I think there's an opportunity that even for someone that comes in under HR star that might be focused on uh, just learning recruitment and staffing as their initial foundational track, there's many opportunities for them to then cross into other functional areas as they either find an interest or want to become more versed in other areas of HR. And so when you think about that from a career mapping or a progression standpoint, it's important to understand different components of how HR works. And so that as you move into higher levels of supervisory roles or more of a leadership role, understanding all the different functional areas of HR and how they interoperate to actually give a complete picture on what it looks like to be an HR specialist in BHA. And so exciting that, again, HR Star was focusing on three tracks for us right now, looking at recruitment and placement, what we call our technical review track, which is really making sure that the things that get entered into an employee's personnel record are done correctly, because we have a lot of rules and regulations, so it's important that we get that right. And then our employee relations, labor relations track, which is really dealing with performance and conduct issues, but also making sure that we're complying with labor rules and laws. And so there's a lot of skill set needed in those, and those are some of our big areas of need right now. David Perry, VHA's Chief Officer for Workforce Management and Consulting, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, they helped write this big law, and now they have to help carry it out. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Somebody had to actually write the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill back in 2021. Its proponents expected to help modernize old bridges and highways, among other things. My next guests helped Congress craft that bill. Now they're leading the Transportation Department team helping to implement it. For their work, they've won this year's Service to America Medal for Management Excellence. Gloria Shepard is executive director of the Federal Highway Administration. She joins me now. Ms. Shepard, good to have you with us. Thank you. And also joining me is the executive director of the Office of the Department of Transportation Undersecretary, Maria Lefevre. Ms. Lefevre, good to have you with us. Good to be with you. All right. Let's talk about the background here. Everybody talks about infrastructure. You folks deal with it as we understand it, those of us that drive, take airplanes, take trains, whatever the case might be. What was the process like? Describe what it was like working with Congress, who actually has to craft this into language. What did you bring to them that helped them craft this bill? Maria? Sure. Any legislation, we oftentimes help Congress through what's called technical assistance. And we get a lot of questions from Capitol Hill, both sides of the aisle, is asking, are able to implement something and how we would implement if, you know, the language they sent us works that way. So it was countless hours of back and forth with our colleagues on, on the legislative side to continue to put great ideas into a bill that uh, ended up coming to fruition. All right. And uh, Gloria, everybody talks about the roads and the bridges, and we all encounter the ones we encounter, and some of the bridges are rickety and some of the roads are breaking up. Does the Federal Highway Administration, did you bring to this some kind of an organized knowledge of where the problem areas actually are? FHWA has 52 divisions, one division in every state, including one in Puerto Rico and D.C. So when a congressional official or a senator or whomever calls and asks about a specific issue in their states, we are able to reach out to our division and get firsthand knowledge on what the situation is and be able to provide them with technical assistance if they want on how to fix the problem. 
Now, a certain part of this bill is, in fact, devoted to the railroads and the highways and so forth. And as you point out, a lot of the roads come under state jurisdiction. Did you also have an idea of what the cost for the priority projects would add up to? You know, the bill was a trillion dollars, but that's just an arbitrary number. It sounds like you must have had to help them shape that number that would be for the infrastructure that the FHA oversees. Yes, we have a national bridge inventory system and we have a pavement inventory system. And we also work with the states on what we call their state transportation implementation program. And in those programs are a list of projects that the states plan to implement over a period of time. So if we look at each state and what we call a STIP, we have an idea of what the state is contemplating for the next at least four years. And if we look at the Metropolitan Long Range Plan, that plan can be no less than 20 years. So we can see what they're planning out for in the future. So we get an idea by calculating those costs to see what's necessary or what's required in order to put those projects and implement those projects and put the system, transportation system back in a good state of repair. Okay. And uh, Ms. Lefevre, you must have a view of everything that's not a road that is also infrastructure. How do the airport situation, the uh, landing and whatever else is there, and all of the railroad infrastructure, which is private sector in some areas, it's public sector in other areas, sounds like a complicated thing to get a handle on. Certainly. And similar, we have an idea of backlog of rolling stock and others. And for rail, the rail system that needs to be upgraded and the backlog of upgrades. And then the new discretionary grant programs that we in Congress will be contemplating. So we had numbers. You have the regular authorization or or reauthorization uh, for a five-year bill and add new discretionary grant programs or enhance the ones that we have with a larger dollar amount and try to fill in the gaps of some backlog of maintenance and growth. And we're working towards a really big number that we needed to get to to bring transportation system to the 21st century and beyond to help it grow, sustain, and remain the safest transportation system in the world. By the way, is the Baltimore Tunnel part of the project? Is that <laughs> we're going to ever see a new tunnel there? If the state puts that on their plan, then yes, you will see it. But we rely on the states to identify what infrastructure needs repair and when it needs repair. Sure. We're speaking with Gloria Shepard. She's executive director of the Federal Highway Administration and with Maria Lefevre, executive director of the Office of the Undersecretary of Transportation. They, along with the Office of Railroad Development's Paul Nissenbaum, are winners in this year's Service to America Medal for Management Excellence. And now that the bill is passed, it's been around a couple of years, what are you seeing in terms of applications, the workload? Give us an update on the implementation of actually fixing infrastructure. Ms. Shepard? The workload has increased significantly um, because of the bipartisan infrastructure law. The states receive funds two ways, through their formula funds that goes directly to them, and as Maria mentioned, through discretionary programs. Well, we have a significant number of discretionary programs. Our last significant effort under the law was completed by September 30 when we allocated $61 billion in apportionments for 12 formula programs for fiscal year 2024, the third year of funding under the legislation. The $61 billion in funding represents an increase of $17.6 billion in formula programs. The other thing I would like to just point out that Even though we do highways and bridges and we do concrete, asphalt, and steel, 
this law is not only about those kinds of transportation projects. This law has provided us with an opportunity to work on historic initiatives, including supporting transportation safety. And Maria will tell you that safety is the premier focus for every mode in the USDOT. It also enhances equity by reconnecting communities that were previously divided by transportation infrastructure. It implements electrification, which will help reduce our country's carbon footprint and strengthening supply chains. So we get a chance, as Maria mentioned, to work on a lot of different type of projects than we have before, like reconnecting communities. So this law is pretty expansive and not just about asphalt, steel, and concrete. Yeah, I remember those uh, can be powerful projects. I remember there was a town called Milton in Massachusetts cut in half by the Southeast Expressway in the late 1950s, and finally they bridged it over, and a whole community kind of came back together. So a lot of call for this kind of thing. Maria, tell us more about the safety aspects and are, for example, certain areas that have been maybe don't need rebuilding physically but have been deemed unsafe will get some kind of a facelift to make them safer? Absolutely. And in regards to the numbers as well, we're seeing our discretionary grant programs as well. We put out a notice of funding opportunity. They are still being oversubscribed. That means more applications and money that is, is there. And we still have to make you know a discretionary decision. But one of the main decisions that the Secretary gets to make on those applications is safety. And safety is, again, the criteria of those discretionary and even if a, a you know a community feels that uh, something is not safe or a, not just a bridge but a grade crossing, we are making sure that we are prioritizing those applications as they come in and go through a, an extensive evaluation. And you know we're we're helping with grade crossings, even if it's a bridge or put in a roundabout instead of a, a, a stoplight or a stop sign, and making every day safer for the American user. All right, and. As people who spend their lives in the transportation domain, this must seem like a little bit of seventh heaven to you, even though there's a lot of work. Well, it, it um, is. It, it is an honor. It's a tremendous honor. And we thank uh, the secretary and the deputy secretary and Carlos Monge, who Maria works directly for. But I want to point out, uh, Maria and I answer these questions. We say we. And we is an important word to us because we are the faces that are words. But there's a lot of other people. We have uh, FHWA has upward close to 2,800 people, and all those people work to deliver the programs on a day-to-day basis uh, that affects uh, the American people's lives and promotes safety and, and other priorities. So we means everyone who's worked on this bipartisan infrastructure law. Okay, and uh, final word, Maria. I second that, and we're uh, just the faces of this wonderful humbling award. And, is, you know, there's 55,000 people at DOT, and in some way, some structure, they've all touched this wonderful bill. It's not only creating jobs within DOT, it's creating thousands of jobs outside of DOT. Maria Lefevre is Executive Director of the Office of the Undersecretary of Transportation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Gloria Shepard is Executive Director of the Federal Highway Administration. Thank you as well. Thank you. We appreciate the opportunity. And they, along with the Office of Railroad Development's Paul Nissenbaum, are winners of this year's Service to America Medal for Management Excellence. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a long-serving career executive has kept the proverbial trains running 
But first, with the world as it is, U.S. agility is more important than ever. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Widening military conflicts around the world have got military planners in the United States on edge. For some perspective on resiliency, innovation, and artificial intelligence in the defense domain, at a recent conference I caught up with former DOD and Navy Chief Information Officer and Army veteran Terry Halverson, now with IBM. I started with a question about how agility might get the U.S. through all of this. There are breakouts of conflict now on two major fronts in the world, one in the Middle East, one in Ukraine. And they're not isolated, are they? And what do you think the agility needs to be in the United States to be able to deal with these in a way that they don't threaten us or that we can resolve them in a way that is positive for our influence in the world? Tom, that's a great question. And I would add to while it's not maybe at the same level as Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East, but we've got a fairly intense situation in China, especially in the sea area there. So I think this is a a time where we really have to start being able to show agility. And, And maybe in the most important area, we've got to be able to show agility in the ability to exchange information and data with our allies. I mean, as you just said, these are not isolated events. So if we can keep the data exchange between the allies and take the things that are common data or things that are going to be important across all of these areas at the same time, get it to them at what I'll call mission speed or at commander speed, it gives the U.S. and the allies a big advantage in whatever operations we want to conduct, even if they're short of war, it gives us that intelligent decision advantage. But haven't we always done that? I mean, what's holding us back here? I would say we've always done it. Um, Generally, we've done it pretty well when it got to a war situation. I think today the volume of data we need to move, the number of changing allies, and the incredible pace of technology is challenging our systems. It's challenging our acquisition system. It's challenging somewhat our decision systems, even inside DOD. And I would say right now it's certainly challenging, and this is not a political statement about either side, it's just we're in a challenging political situation to be able to get all of the decisions we need on time. Yeah, I guess getting a 45 or whatever it was day continuing resolution counts as good political backing these days, and we won't go there too much here. Right, but I mean it does, I mean I think again, not a political statement, but I do think when you have that, and Unfortunately, the department has had to get used to dealing with continuing resolutions, but it's gotten worse and worse. So it just impacts the entire decision-making cycle. So it slows up the budget. It slows up decisions. You compound that with some of the acquisition issues that we face, and it really becomes a super challenge of can we keep the right pace in both acquiring and fielding these new systems that will continue to give us and our allies decision advantage. And and I would say the thing that I see in the Defense Department today, and I think it is the key, and I see this in the Defense Departments uh, from all our allies, is no one's talking without saying the word ally. I mean, we just got back from vacation in Italy, but while I was there, I ran into some of our Italian counterparts, but German counterparts, NATO counterparts, all of them are talking, my gosh, the importance of the allies being able to just get decision quality data in command or mission time across the seams. And if we can 
do that and continue to accelerate that, it really will give us a really big advantage. And there's a couple of really big commissions going on right now. There was just the interim report on acquisition reform for the DOD, and they said this is what we're going to suggest, but we're not formally suggesting it yet, aimed at that whole idea of getting acquisition up to the decision of what is needed for decision-making. What's your hope there? (laughs) Two things. I think they're on the right track. The thing I would say is what we may need is some more accelerated training. We've got a lot of new contract officers and a lot of retirements, a lot of new contracting officers in DOD, a lot of them in other agencies, but we'll limit this to DOD. They need to understand all of the authorities that they have. One of the things that I do see is some of the new acquisition officers maybe don't understand every authority that they have that could help accelerate what they're doing. And so that tends to slow some things down. On the other hand, I think industry also needs to be more specific in this is what we can do. This is the set of products that can deliver a solution. And it's going to mean that industry has got to partner more too. Uh, I'm very proud of IBM right now. We're really reaching out hard to make sure that we're partnering and we're partnering with companies that can bring the right solutions. And I think that's where industry has to step up. It's delivering a solution And we're going to talk about the key areas. AI is a key area we need to get solutions on because they need to be solutions that are not only mission speed capable, but they also have to be ethical, which my definition says when it's time to pull a trigger, we've got to have a man in the loop. That's what we have to keep doing. Yeah, the idea of autonomy extends to that point, but then only to that point. Yeah. Which means that you have to have a pretty careful understanding and application of the way you do your AI. I'm going to say this, um, and I think this is where, you know, IBM's got great technology, but what I will say, and, and I mean this somebody listening, the process of getting there, as you just said, is really critical. No matter whose AI you're using, it's that process. Making sure that the data you're using has auditability and is authentic. Because just like AI can be a great tool for the good, it can help us produce all kinds of fake data, too. So the thing that we have stressed at, at IBM and what we have gotten great responses from, particularly from the Army leadership, is the fact that we show an auditable, authentic system that can verify the data. Uh, And I think anybody doing that right now, that's got to be an emphasis point. And to some extent, you've got to be able to willing to teach some of that to the defense systems and their contractors, regardless of what what funding is bothered. You've got to teach that to them so they know how to do that and they'll, they'll do the best buys possible. And what is IBM peddling at the Army show? It is really about data, and that means it's about how AI can help them improve decision, be a force multiplier. It's about automation. One of the things that we do know, and let's take cybersecurity for an example, we're not going to have enough cybersecurity people. It's just not going to happen. So one of the ways you fix that is you've got to have a solution that has AI, automation, and data management that becomes a force multiplier so that those security analysts are looking at a much greater defined set of data that lets them get to decisions quicker on mission time. And that's where we really have to keep focusing. Yeah, the challenge in AI and in the greater point of decision-making is not big data anymore. It's the correct data, and that could be small data. Well, I'm going to say it's two things. It's still big data because the volume of data keeps, you know, we threw out Moore's Law a long time ago. <laughs> it keeps growing and growing and growing. And then you just added the great comment, not only is it growing and growing and growing, fake data is growing probably even faster than that. So how do you make sure you've got the right data 
you're getting through the big volumes of data and you're triaging that data. So you're pulling out what is the most optimum, important data to the right level of command. That's the other thing, and I will give the Army credit. I think they've gotten really good at saying, you know what, not everybody needs every piece of data. A battalion has this limited sphere. They need this data. A division needs this data. A corps needs this data. In fact, when we get that data to commanders at the right level, let them command. And I really applaud the Army for stepping up on that right now. Terry Halverson is former Defense Department Chief Information Officer, now Vice President for Federal Client Development at IBM. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a long-serving career executive has kept the proverbial trains running. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You might not know him by name, but my next guest oversees an operation that touches thousands of federal employees. He's also worked facilities, operations, and budget analysis across the government. Now he's among the new members of the National Academy of Public Administration. Byron Adkins joins me now. Mr. Adkins, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be on the program. And so to dispel the mystery right away, you are the director of the Interior Business Center, and that is kind of the king of operations type of agencies with shared services across the government. Tell us what that's all about exactly. Absolutely. So we are a federal shared service provider recognized by OMB and OPM. First of all, we are a payroll provider similar to the National Finance Center. We pay about almost 300,000 employees across the federal government. That's the largest service that we provide. But we also provide back office HR, financial management, general ledger accounting. We do acquisitions, cradle to grave, as well as financial assistance. And then we also have moved into innovative with robotics process automation and entering into AI as well, if you can believe that as well. So we've been expanding some of our service offerings, but we provide anything that would be mission enabling functions for most agencies. Now, agencies are always saying IT is an enabler of their mission, but in many ways, your mission is IT. And so I guess I should ask the magic question, how's your infrastructure these days? Infrastructure could use a little work. It's an aging infrastructure, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve that and upgrade that, particularly from a user experience perspective. And so we are in a position where that could vastly improve and probably could use some significant investment. But we're working actively to improve that and to better our systems for our users. And how did you get to Interior Business Center from the earlier part of your career? I've been very fortunate. I actually was first introduced to the Interior Business Center when I was on a senior executive candidate development program, and I did a long-term detail there back in 2012. And so that's where I got bit by the shared services bug. And I was there almost a year, got to uh, meet with some very interesting people. Some of the folks that were working there are still actually there. And I really enjoyed it. It was so entrepreneurial. It was fee-for-service. You kind of eat what you catch. And I got bit by the bug. And so um, I took a couple of opportunities uh, working in facilities and construction for the Department of Commerce. And three years ago, I boomeranged back and was fortunate enough to land a director position. Right. So the same code is running that you saw, you know, a dozen years ago when you were there the first time. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they say when your infrastructure is older than your youngest employee, you need to replace it. And so we have that in some instances. (laughs) All right. But this is kind of a theme of your background is operations, analysis, trying to make things operate properly. 
Tell us more about what you've done in the past. I know you served a stint at the uh, Army Corps of Engineers also. So I was a, uh, a ROTC student years ago back at North Carolina ENT. So I actually commissioned into the Army Corps Engineers and they give you this opportunity to select your branch. And I said, well, I'm an engineer by trade because I'm a lecture engineer. I should try the Corps Engineers. Um, and I was thinking I was going to be doing some really sexy hydropower and dam safety or engineering construction. And unfortunately, all Army engineers start off as combat engineers. Uh, we call that uh, infantry with a shovel. Um, and so you, if you think about it, anytime you occupy a location, um, it doesn't necessarily have an, the necessary infrastructure, so roads and bridges and so forth, demolition. That's the type of work I was doing for the five years I was with the Corps Engineers. After I transitioned from there, I had the opportunity to work for the Research Development Command for the Army, now called the Army Future Command, working on counter-ID programs. Did that for about three years, and then I transitioned to the federal government working in budget and finance. And you were also at Agriculture in the Office of Operations. Did you happen to touch their business center, which I guess is complementary to the Interior Business Center? I did not. Besides them paying me every uh, two weeks, I did not have an opportunity to work within their business center, but I did keep the lights on for them. All right. We're speaking with Byron Adkins. He is the director of the Interior Department's Interior Business Center. He's also a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Tell us about the rise to senior executive service. I mean, those that enter the government young may have that aspiration. What does it take, do you think, in the long term? How do you build a career such as yours? You know, I've been extremely fortunate, and it may look like my career has been linear, but it's really been taking advantage of opportunities that have come before me. I mentioned the Senior Executive Candidate Development Program. That really accelerated my career and provided some opportunities. Um, and about 10 years ago was when I first entered into the senior executive ranks. And so really a lot of mentorship, um, a lot of uh, personal development and growth and being at the right place at the right time. I won't say I'm so smart that I got here on my own, uh, but opportunities presented themselves, and I was able to kind of rise to the top there and been very fortunate to be here. And as you mentioned, you are an electrical engineer by education. So many people go to school with public administration degrees or whatever soft types of degrees. You got to senior executive ranks and you oversee you know a couple of thousand people that operate that center and from an engineering standpoint. So what's the better way, engineering and then learn public administration or come in with public administration and then learn what you need to do about engineering? Well, I'm a bit biased. I think I always say engineering provides a great foundation for any career. A public administrator can't be an engineer, but an engineer can be a public administrator. So I would say it provided a great foundation to work with teams, doing problem solving, which can be applied in a, a number of careers. And so I definitely can say that I benefited from that. I do have an MPA and an MBA as well, but it was a good foundation for me. All right. So you're not that old yet, actually. So what what do you hope to do long term here? You know, before I was called to lead, I was called to serve. And so I'm really looking for the opportunity to continue to serve and provide good government. This is why I love the Interior Business Center and the opportunity to not just serve the Department of Interior, but over 150 different agencies for mission enabling functions. Also, um, this opportunity with NAPA, um, it's a service organization that adds extreme amount of value to the the government and uh, looking to really participate in some studies and, and better our government. And so that's what I'd like to do in the near future. Uh, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. And you mentioned there is probably some infrastructure updating that the Interior Business Center needs. There was recently a NAPA report that was pretty dire about the Agriculture's Business Center. And sometimes it seems manifest to the people there, gosh, we need this money to do this. 
but manifest doesn't mean Congress says, yeah, you're right, here you go. You have some budget analytics background. You do have that engineering background. How can you bring that together to make a good business case for the dollars that instinctively you know are needed for these types of modernizings? Well, that's a great question, Tom, and we're actively pursuing that. A big piece of that is showing the data, showing the infrastructure that we have and and what can happen if we don't invest in this type of infrastructure. The other thing is that we're not going at this alone. Um, We have partnered with uh, the National Finance Center as well to figure out how can we help each other? How can we partner towards a solution, uh, recognizing that there's a finite amount of resources to make these large capital investments to replace the infrastructure? When I talk about primarily, I'm talking about our payroll and personnel system, which is rather old and antiquated, but it works and it's secure. And so a big piece of that is is just getting a coalition of the willing and folks that can clearly see, hey, you do not want to have a situation where we cannot pay half of the federal government. How can we go about this to secure the funding and the capital investment necessary to make sure we can sustain operations? And so we're going about that in a number of different ways, particularly with the Shared Services Leadership Coalition supporting us and getting into the right rooms and spaces to request that type of funding. And not to put you on the spot, but should the government have two matching business centers, maybe one really super duper modern one could do the job that the two are doing now. You know, everything's on the table, Tom. You know, uh, <laughs> if, if someone's willing to support it and fund it, if we're still in a better place than we are now. Um, that is uh, something that we floated around in a consideration uh, to figure out. And that's part of the partnership. You know, we also are in the process and have requested technology modernization funds. And some of the, that was some of the feedback that they gave as well. Say, hey, both of you guys have requested funding. Perhaps we should look at this together. And perhaps um, there's a single uh, source um, to provide payroll. So we'll, we, we're looking at all options here. Whoever's uh, going to provide some funding, uh, we'll, we'll consider it. All right. Well, there could be some exciting news then at some point down the line. Byron Adkins is director of the Interior Department's Interior Business Center, and he's a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, and welcome me back anytime. Thank you so much. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Army's Office of Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology has big plans for 2024 to advance digital transformation. AL&T will focus on software modernization, achieving data centricity, and digital engineering, what the Army officials call building blocks of long-term success. For more about the software front, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army, for data, engineering, and software, Jennifer Swanson. From a software modernization perspective, we have been working very hard to get decisions made by Army leadership, which we were able to get. So we have a lot of support to change a lot of the processes that we need change in order to really modernize how we develop software. So on the ASALT end, we, we can and are putting out RFPs that have contract language that tells vendors really what we're looking for. Not just give me the solution, but how to give me the solution. I want you to use agile software development. I want you to use DevSecOps. But we also need the requirements, the test, all of the things that we're dependent on to come together in terms of how we do Agile and not how we've been doing it. So I got to Ace Auto's Dasa Dust in May of last year, and I would say the first nine months of that, six to nine months, were spent really trying to figure out what are the obstacles that we have that we need, we need help fixing. And so 
we're there, and that's that's huge because we have AFC now completely on board to write requirements in a different way for software to enable Agile to be in the sprints with us so that we refine those requirements as we go. We're working with the test community on how do we accept automated test data for credit and all of that stuff. So I think we've made a lot of progress. And, you know, from an internal ASAL perspective, my team is writing playbooks and different things. We have an upskilling curriculum because we're trying to build the skills. So that's kind of where we're at with with software modernization. RFPs are looking different, and that's not going to change. Let me jump in on the software modernization just to pull that string a little bit. One of the biggest challenges, of course, is budget. The DoD generally had some software modernization pilot potential to say, hey, can we show that we can buy differently and do software differently? Is that something that you all are looking at? Is that in your world or is that more big OSD, DoD, and maybe it hasn't kind of filtered down to the Army yet to use know your money to modernize software? So we do have one program in that BA pilot, which is DCO. There haven't really been new programs added in a couple of years, but what the Army is looking at, and honestly, I'll give the Air Force credit because I kind of stole the idea from them and then took it back to the Army, but uh, the services are now looking at can we just use BA7, RDT, and E as that single year or single appropriation? Because the one of the big decisions that the Army made in the past six months that we that the under and the vice made is we're no longer transitioning software to sustainment. So where prior we were, you know, developing it in ASALT, transitioning it to AMC, and then AMC then needed OMA money because that's a sustainment mission. In CICD, which is what we're doing, right? Continuous integration, continuous delivery. There is no software sustainment. Software is never done. So can we use BA7 or DT&E for all of those functions? And we believe we can. And just to put a finer point on that, because we, we know we talk into acronyms. We're talking about RTD&E as research. Development, test, and engineering, yes. And then the BA7 piece is? is a flavor of that money. So there's a bunch of different flavors of, right, 6-1 is like super early S&T all the way to 6-8, which was this BA money. 6-7 is just before 6-8. Thank you, because we can all get lost in yeah. the acronyms, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so you made this, the decision was made by the chief and vice chief about you said about six months ago. Was that a, a, in a memo? Was that just a, a – how was that communicated – and what does that mean now going forward? About not transitioning to sustainment? Correct. Thank you. So, yeah, there is a memo that was signed by the under that says we're not transitioning software to sustainment anymore in FY24. What does that mean? The the software that is in sustainment today largely is going to stay in sustainment. We're not mostly going to pull things back. We may look at things here and there if there's something that's going to be in the field for the next 15 years that we're adding capability to. It might make sense to pull it back, but for the most part, that's not the intent. However, starting in FY24, the PMs will keep the responsibility for the software and the money for that, that's programmed right now in the SS peg for that software. Um, starting in FY25, we will allow PMs to look to perhaps budget more RDT&E, less OMA, maybe no OMA, depending, right? And so we're going to help them make those decisions on a lot of different factors, but that's really what we're looking at. So moving forward, we want to leverage AMC software, organic software capabilities and expertise to help us. Um, but the PM and ASOD are going to own the responsibility and the money for evolving software. I want to talk about a couple of your other parties, but one last thing around software. 
you talked about RFPs are looking different. Mm -hmm. your, your, the, the requirements are looking different. Just any examples come to mind? Any, any way to, to say, hey, before we'd write it this way, now we're writing it that way? Yeah. RFPs, for the most part, used to be very solution-centric. And we would explain as best we could what we are looking for industry to do. And then industry would come back and say, okay, it's going to take us X amount of money, X amount of years. This is what we can give you. And we'll deliver you a product three years from now, four years from now, whatever. And that's, that's waterfall and that's what we've been doing, right? So what's changed? I would say that the significant shift in RFPs is – we are no longer just asking, give me a product. We are also asking and evaluating during source selection phase, how agile are you, company? So we're going to use really hands-on evaluation techniques during source selection, and we're doing it right now for um, enterprise business systems convergence. That was the first RFP out of the gate that we modified to look this way that says, okay, we're, we're going to evaluate what you can give us, the product, but also we're going to change the requirements, and we want to see how fast can you adapt that software to our new requirements because that's what we need, right? So we're evaluating the product but also the ability of the company to be agile, and I think that's a very significant shift. The other thing is I don't want something three years from now. I want it now. So we are requiring minimum viable products, right, which is part of agile software development, the frequency can – it depends. We're not going to say it has to be every three months. It has to be every week. But it depends on the product and the program. Software Pathway, which we are using now for many of our systems, is it requires you to at least have one MVP a year. We want to do much more than that, though. So we're not, we're not going to settle for just one a year for the most part. There's so much more to talk about software development because I think this is such a big piece, and we could talk uh, – but I'll – Move us over the third piece to the digital transformation. What's that look like and, and where are you heading? Data mesh is where the Army is headed with regard to implementation of data centricity for, for programs. And that's something that we started last June, and we have made tremendous amounts of progress. So we're building a reference architecture it's a three-phase architecture. We're finished with two of the three phases, and we complete the third phase in June. We have put out RFIs to industry for each phase, so there's been two RFIs that went out. And I'm really happy to say the second RFI, we got fantastic feedback from industry. So the first RFI... I'm not sure. I think they were like, oh, another RFI. So, you know, here's a solution. Buy this box. But we had an industry day in April where we were very clear that the intent for this reference architecture is it's going to be included as requirements in programs. So when we start putting out RFPs once it's done, they will require compliance with the reference architecture because that's the only way we're going to be able to really get to data centricity and data mesh. So RFI number two, we got fantastic, very thoughtful responses from industry, and we got like 60. So that that's great. And we are in parallel because we move fast. Uh, we're partnered with DevCom up at Aberdeen Proving Ground with C5ISR Center. We are working in their lab. Their folks are building an implementation of the reference architecture right now so that we can validate it. We don't want to put it out without knowing that 100% it works. And that is going to turn into what we're calling the innovation exchange, which is going to be a place where industry can come and determine, is your box compliant? 
Um, if not, what do you maybe have to tweak to make it compliant? What are some gaps that we have that you have products that we could use to fill the gaps, um, et cetera? So that's where we're at with data. And I think, you know, we've, we've made a tremendous amount of progress in terms of data centricity in the past year. Walk me through the data reference architecture a little bit. You said there's three pieces. The first two pieces were what and what should what is coming in June? Yeah. Data mesh is based on data products. So it's thinking about data a little bit differently. It's not a bunch of raw data like we think about a data lake or as we like to call it an ESALT. My, Mr. Bang, the PDEP, PDEP likes to call it the data swamp. Um, so data products are really defined by each data domain. So you have a domain owner, like take logistics just because it's easy, right? So you have a logistics domain owner, and that logistics domain owner defines what data products his users need. And so the first RFI that went out was data product. What, what does a data product look like? What, what makes a data product compliant with this architecture? How do I build it? What does the metadata look like? Stuff like that. The second RFI was the services. So there's a bunch of mesh services that need to be provided in order to make all of this data product stuff flow, be compliant, work, have the things that it needs to, to operate within the architecture. And the last phase is the domain. So how do we define a domain? How do we architect that? What does a domain need to provide? How does that interface with the services? Things like that. What's the timing for the data for this architecture to be done? And then you mentioned that this uh, Aberdeen Proving Ground kind of test lab, what should vendors know about, hey, can I bring my uh, box to test it out? Can I, can I participate in some way? So the timing for the architecture to be complete is this fiscal year. That said, again, because of what we're doing in the lab, if we find tweaks that we need to make with regard to the implementation, we're obviously going to make those tweaks before we put it out and require it of any of, of industry, right? So I would say early next fiscal year is when I think we'll be done done. The innovation exchange is... I'm going to say it will be ready by early FY24. So we need to get this architecture done. That's our big focus right now. We are working the innovation exchange and standing it up in parallel. And I think that we will be able to support industry coming in starting early next fiscal year. Jennifer Swanson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Data, Engineering, and Software, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.